We've been at war with Russia since at least 2008, but for most of that time, we're not aware of it. The financial crash of 2008 unleashed a wave of instability and change across the world, and Russian propagandists started to pour petrol on the flames from the start. Since the troll factories in Russia, since then, the troll factories in Russia have sought to leverage divisions within Western nations, as well as Eastern Europe, Africa, and the Middle East. There have been wave after wave of crisis, the growing pains of the 21st century. Georgia, Maidan, Crimea, Donbass, Brexit, Trump, Ukraine. Although Russia did not initiate all of these crises, they have ceaselessly probed to gain advantage from them and sow discord amongst their adversaries. The techniques they use are disturbingly similar to Nazi propaganda methods, but updated for the digital age. Even though this propaganda can seem crude at times, absurd and contradictory, it is alarmingly effective, especially in countries across Africa and the Middle East, Hungary, Serbia, and Italy. Welcome to Silicon Curtain Podcast. Please like and subscribe if you like the content we produce. It will really help to increase the popularity of our content in YouTube's algorithm. Our material is now being made available on popular podcasting platforms as well, such as Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Monique Kamara lives in Siena and is a language instructor at the Department of Communication at the University of Siena. She runs language and political communication courses, but has also run for office in her city and has been politically active for several years and comes from a family with a strong heritage of political activism. Monique studied international history at the LSE London. She became acutely aware of Russia after the financial crash of 2008, when hard left and right populism took hold in Italian politics. Monique observed and documented the rise of the Five Star Movement, Salvini and others closely. She started podcasting out of a need to educate and inform and is now co-host on three channels, including The Kremlin File with Olga Lautman. Monique, welcome. Hi, Jonathan. And thank you. Thank you for that great introduction. I hope that was all accurate as well. <laughs> it was, it was. It, LinkedIn. <laughs> it was, it was, it was. Just a shout out to my alma mater and the at the master's level, which was University of Toronto. So it was, uh, uh, I would say, it's in my heart because of the professors, the great professors that I had there. So I'm very, uh, very happy about that. But thank you for inviting me. Well, thank you. Well, let's start with your podcast yeah. activity. When mm. and why did you start it? And really, what's the ideal audience for the content you create? Well, I started, uh, let's say my first podcast, which was something of a bit of a garage, uh, garage style, just uh, doing it on my own. And why was I triggered? Why, why did I start that? Um, I had seen, as you had said in the introduction, uh, after 2008, what was happening in Italy really was alarming. And in 2014, I saw the rise, a real, um, uh, how can I put it, a, a real effort, um, a continuous drumbeat of populist propaganda that was really disturbing because it went back, a lot of the language, as as you said, and I'm, I, I'm a language instructor as well and a political communications instructor, so I pay attention to these kind of things. And what I was seeing was highly disturbing. And I said, what is this? And where did it come from? And why? Okay, who's behind it more than anything? Because um, running a political campaign, since I've been in politics for all of my life, to run an actual national political campaign, at that time, you needed anywhere from 20 to 25 million euro. And the way this campaign was being run by the Five Star Movement, they were saying it was a bit like the Obama, okay, 
you know, donate a dollar. And here they say they made the Italian version of, okay, bring some prosciutti and bring a bottle of wine, you know, to help us out. But I know, for example, that certain piazzas cost 25,000 euro an hour, okay, to rent. So I started asking myself, where is this coming from, right? Who's behind it? Who has the heft to be able to bring, you know, these... Uh, uh, these, um, let's say, these events, all right, at a national level. Uh, it also had popped up, the five stars had popped up out of, out of nowhere. And there was also at the same time, uh, a lot of rhetoric coming out of um, the Italian League, okay, the Salvini's League. And as we know, right, Jonathan, Vedusconi uh, is the father of modern populism, so, you know, he was at it as well. So this was all extremely alarming to me because of the actual, no rhetoric that was there. And then Brexit. And then after Brexit, we had Trump. So I said, okay, I've got to, I've got to write some of this down because I was doing it in my political communication courses, but I was afraid at the same time that I was pressing a little too much on certain political levers there. So I said, okay, no, I need my own, I, I got to get my own uh, podcast. I'll do this. So that's what I started doing. That was the first one. And then speaking with um, uh, with Olga Lautman, I interviewed her and we got along so well. We were supposed to do uh, just an interview about you know half an hour and we ended up speaking for three hours. So after that, she said, okay, no, we have to do this together. So that was Kremlin file. Then um, I also have Europhile, which is something that I do with Scott Lucas and also an Italian show, okay, which is called What the Fuck, all right? And again, it's it's towards, what we're trying to do is communicate what we see in all of these, okay? We're trying to get to the bottom of what is behind, what is underneath uh, that people cannot see because they don't see, you know what, Jonathan, people don't have the time to do the work that we do where you have to sit and read for hours and hours and hours and hours, right? And do the investigation. They don't have time for that. Normal people, they've got work, family, and, you know, and they listen in and they want um, information. Okay, so uh, the audience is, is this, people who are, would like to get to the bottom of things, right? So I hope I haven't talked too much. But Not at all. <laughs> That's great. Um, <laughs> What I found fascinating as well, um, you know, arguing with people, and I've done a lot of arguing over the last couple of months, mm -hmm. um, especially people, tends to be those who are more politically active, but who are tuned into the language of some political conspiracy theorists, or now let's, let's call them contrarians, you know, people who are constantly trying to see the other side of any argument and distrust mainstream media. And... I found myself arguing continuously, mm. not that they're wrong, but that the arguments they're making are not their own. You know, exactly. the patterns of the language, some of the phrases, the mythology they're tapping into. Like you, I've come to think, well, hang on a second. These, they're yeah. getting this stuff from somewhere. Yeah. And if you don't have a deeper knowledge of the culture or the language or the history, then they can be quite compelling. So where is all this stuff coming from? Yeah. Exactly. You're absolutely right. Uh, I started looking at, um, as I said before, all of, let's see, the tropes and where it was coming from. Um, well, the tropes that were virulent and also accepted, okay, in uh, thing. And basically, what we're seeing, there is a whole, let's say, study, as you know, Jonathan, behind the scenes of people looking at disinformation. We can thank the Ukrainians for this uh, as well, because in 2014, that's when they really took to organizing themselves to understand, okay, where these tropes were coming from. Uh, they discovered, obviously we know, uh, you've had a conversation with Jessica Aro, so you know exactly what I'm talking about. Uh, and these messages were basically there. It's pipelined. I mean, it's it's you know from the troll farms, and then they're brought right into Europe. From Europe, there no, it goes off into the United States. Um, it's a lot faster now. Okay, in the beginning, uh, it wasn't uh, say it wasn't as fast. People were not on Twitter a lot. You know, Facebook was very popular, but it took time. Okay, to, for those tropes to sink in. Some of the tropes, I have to say, were very, um, they resonated with 
traditional societies or, you know, with, I mean, the way that the Russians construct their, um, the propaganda that is, or the disinformation or malinformation or misinformation is that it's something that a society will accept. They'll find a, you know, a little grain of truth in there that they can grab onto. But a lot of these are intelligence operations. I mean, this is something that people need to understand, I think. Um, we are not talking about just sort of haphazard organizations. This has a, a definite structure to it. And in terms of, dis uh, dis uh, of dissemination mm. into different societies. So this is something uh, a lot of people overlook uh, or they just put it aside and they just can't see it, you know. It's insurgency, essentially, isn't it? I mean, mm -hmm. I've been listening to um, interviews done in the 70s and 80s with quite a few uh, sort of, um, what what could you call them? You know, you know, those agents who defected from the KGB, who mm -hmm. then went on to, and the GRU, who mm -hmm. then went on to describe some of the methodology. And mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. one in particular whose name escapes me, but I'll I'll put it in the comments afterwards, and he talks about the fact that for insurgency operations, they won't come at it from point of view of saying, here's a truth we want to impose on you. They will look around to see what truths, conflict and division mm -hmm. exist in the society they're trying to undermine. Of course. Well, it's it's much more acceptable, right? If you have that kind of thing, it's very flexible. Uh, we're seeing it now in the war in Ukraine as well. Whatever happens on the ground, then the tropes change, the narratives change you know, according to what is needed at that time. Um, you know, in the beginning of the war, if I think of some of the narratives that were coming out, uh, for example, the Ukrainians are Nazis, that's kind of stuck, but not too much here in Italy, uh, a little less. We also have, you know, that the EU is going to freeze over the winter. That's come out now. Okay, because of right the the energy warfare, uh, the weaponization of energy is more than ours. That was one exactly they tried a few weeks or or peace. You know, they're they're pressing on, uh, especially here. I can talk about Italy specifically. They're they are let's say really really pressing on those. Um, let's say the left, the traditional left who were let's say within the Communist Party or. A uh, socialist party, for example, or peace at all costs, you know, that kind of thing. And this is they tailor that message to, you know, the the uh, the culture that they have, uh, wherever it's going, wherever the message is going. So it's not the same. Let's say some sort of trope works really well in the States. Something else works fantastic, uh, fantastically in uh, in the UK and here something else. So, yes, definitely, definitely. It morphs and it yeah. changes, doesn't it? So yeah. Yeah. in the US, it might be the hard right or the far right might be far more susceptible than the the, the hard left, whereas in Italy, yeah. clearly, you know, and yeah. they're, they're tapping yeah. into what exists in each country. So exactly. let's assume that Russian propaganda has got its claws into European countries and to an extent mm -hmm. the US as well. What is the, in your view, what's the architecture of this info war pipeline? You know, that pipeline that, pumps all this toxic propaganda into our media and social sphere? It's mm, a great question. Um, I look at it in terms of geography. I also look at it in terms of uh, structure. <laughs> I've never actually thought of it that way, you know, because I look at it more as a flow of information and that uh, there are, let's say, uh, different different um, vectors that are used and different layers. So you can find, for example, uh, well-known Italian, uh, like the intelligentsia, for example, or personalities or journalists. I mean, here it's, it's the information that is pumped out through state broadcaster, through television, so on and so forth. That is, all of that information goes through people who are trusted. Okay, that's the whole idea. So that's that's one level, okay, of it, okay, itself. Because it's not always the politicians who are pumping out, you know, these narratives. A lot of it comes from Italians. Italians watch TV, 
still a lot more than other cultures. I think it's something like 70% get their information from the television. So obviously, from years and years and years that the Russians have had close relationships with Italian you know, personalities, political intelligentsia, businessmen, um, and also in, let's say, in the religious sphere, okay, as well. All of that sort of, no, that's your first, okay, one of the levels there. Then you've got social media, okay, as well. And there, um, they have the right, radical right, has a, they have very, very good comms teams who are, you no know, pumping out, sorry, a lot of that. Um, there's one thing <clears throat> that we're looking into now is the whole pipeline that goes through the Russian embassy. Okay, I don't know if we're going to get in trouble with this one, but <laughs> this is what, no, there, uh, there are investigations that uh, are current, and there may be connections through the Russian embassy uh, and then those you no know, narratives and also the people who are connected directly to Razov, so on and so mm. forth, they, you know, um, uh, we know certain political personalities. Mm. Uh, there was a scandal that came out uh, not long ago where Salvini's ticket to go to Moscow was paid by the Russian embassy. So we know that there are long, long-term you no know, connections, associations and organizations who have been on Italian territory, especially after 2014, um, we know that religious and lay, okay, uh, a lot of, let's say, associations that do work together with Russian universities. So this is another way. It's all soft power, Jonathan. So this is this is the way to get that they get into. Business, we know that through Berlusconi, um, the, let's say the economic capture, okay, this is what I'm talking about, uh, through, let's say, energy dependency in Italy that has been going on for quite a long time. Berlusconi was the first one to sign contracts, right, to get uh, Russian oil and gas into Italy. And no, there's no other government after Berlusconi fell in 2011, 2010, 2011. It's not that they changed those contracts. So those contracts went forward. It was only under the Draghi government that fell right now uh, that you know, this um, uh, that, that has changed and they've looked for other suppliers. And the last thing I do want to mention about television itself, um, there are a lot of political talk shows that are here in Italy that are exactly, exactly like the Russian counterparts uh, on Rossiya One. They have the same setup and um, it's sort of like a circus, it's a show, okay? And a lot of people take it to mean something serious or uh, that they're giving actual information and they're not. It's extremely mm. biased. There are a lot of Russian narratives that get through there and they don't allow any counter arguments, or if they do, it's simply to get them to shout. You know, that's it's a circus. It's a, that's what we call it in Italian, you know, circo, and that's essentially okay what we're talking about. The one thing that was really disturbing, though, is that on one channel they had uh, published, they they released a documentary called "The Siege," and to this day, I wrote a report about this. To this day, we have absolutely no idea if that video that was shown during, okay, this hour-long doc documentary, um, whether it was actually, they said it was Italian, uh, Italian uh, video people that were, you no, know, an Italian war reporter that had uh, done this, created this. Uh, we don't know if it was actually Russian, whether they just gave them, okay, the uh, the video material and they said, okay, put it together and they put an Italian voiceover on it because it was something that glorified. And this is what really was, was it hit me as a, it was horrible. It was horrible. They glorified Russian act, uh, like activity in Mariupol. And this is the thing that really, really struck me. And no one, no one, uh, countered these arguments at all. Okay, so it's it's sort of uh, it's it's disturbing. It's very very disturbing. So mm. yeah, yeah. I mean, given yeah. how horrific not only that siege was and yeah. how brutal 
the fact that the way it ended by the prisoners of war essentially yeah. being murdered. Yeah. Um, yeah. And the ones now that will be put on trial, right, through the sham trials they're going to be holding. They have the cages ready. And thing that um, that we're following and we hope, no, that actually will not play out. But I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't put it past the Russians to do this. This is right up their alley, you know. Yeah. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. I, think, I think that uh, coming back to the topic of insurgency, I think this is something that almost everybody still fails to understand is that Russian propaganda doesn't necessarily want to convince you of a point of view. No, it doesn't you're absolutely have, right. It doesn't have an idea that it's trying to get you to swallow. And I think no. this is why so no. many people still struggle with that and take it seriously. They mm-hmm. think they're trying to, you know, that they're being convinced to believe something they don't want to believe in. But that's not what it's about. It's there to no. sow division. No, discord. it's there. Yeah, that's all there. It's it's there to take whatever problem or whatever issue that has not been addressed in whatever society and just blow it up. And that's basically what it's there for. So, you know, uh, in the States, we're going to be seeing, especially in the run-up, to the elections, we're going to be seeing propaganda uh, against gay couples, for example, uh, the traditional family values, because that's a sore spot, okay, with a lot of people. Um, there are lots and lots of different narratives that will be coming out. Uh, in the Italian election, they just keep hammering about, you know, um, uh, oil and gas prices, and that we're going to be cold in the winter. And let's remember the Medvedev. Medvedev came out the other day, right, with his screed, right, saying, uh, and that was directly, it was, let's say, it was a direct, um, those words were were for the Italian audience, because we're going to be going to the polls on the 25th uh, of September. And he said, well, what do you want to do? You want to be cold in the winter or what? You know, so he's, uh, he's looking at what, it's not so much the cold, but it's going to cost us. This is what he's saying. And there are politicians that have come back and said, well, you know, why do we want to sacrifice for Ukraine, you know, which is totally uh, absurd, but it's coming. You're absolutely right. It comes from the left and the right. Mm. That's the whole, as you said, that's the whole point. So you don't know where it's coming from. Jonathan, sometimes I open up my, my Twitter feed and it's like, oh my God. All right. There's like a shower of disinformation coming from all sorts of sides. It's really difficult also to keep up with all of this. It's it's difficult, isn't it? Because not only events are changing, they're constantly testing different narratives. And the industry I'm in, which is marketing, and it reminds me very much of what we do. Mm-hmm. Um, well, yeah. We'll you know. te- test different campaign wording. We'll put out different versions of the same ad and test them against each other. If they don't work, we'll constantly try something different. And exactly. It's, it's a it's a, mecha- it's a mechanism, a bit yeah. like that. Yeah. Um, yeah. Definitely. I also I think agree. a bit. You know, if people want to visualize what Russian propaganda is seeking to do, it it, it sort of builds on, I think, a nineteenth-century sort of fairly colonialist, imperialist Russian tactic, which was divide and rule. Mm-hmm. Pick two arguing sides in the country you want to dominate. Mm-hmm. Then you fund the underdog against the strongest part until, you know, yeah. they've worn each other out, until your underdog becomes, you know, yeah. the, the ruling party. Yeah. Then you perform that process again. You pick another underdog mm-hmm. and then you change sides until your opponent has just themselves out exactly that's exactly the tactic abroad inside Mm -hmm. there's a more they do have a social let's say um there is a plan inside that they are following um and it's it's a bit different but outside sure you know Mm. that's the that's the that's the way to go about it so you've got let's say i can talk about italian politicians on both sides where you know they're they're for putin you can find them everywhere. This is the problem. It's not like you get rid of one political party and you've solved the problem, right? You don't. <laughs> they take they take over all of the parties. There's a small faction in each, you know, in every single party. Yes. And then, of course, Italy is famous for having, you know, 70 parties. Had, uh, in the next elections, there are, well, 150-odd uh, political 
uh, symbols were deposited. Mm -hmm. Now, whether they're going to actually get signatures to to be able to run in the election, that's a different story. But 150 symbols is a lot. And how many of those are actually being funded by the Russians themselves, you know, just to just to muddy the waters and, uh, you know, throw even more confusion. People confusion. don't know what to believe. Jonathan, people don't know what to believe anymore. This is a huge problem that we, you know, uh, even the thing that came out with amnesty. I mean, how many people believed, right, what was written in that report uh, without looking at it, without uh, doing any investigation whatsoever into the people who wrote the report to mm. understand, right, the, 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 let's say, whether it was true or not. And this is a, this is a problem because you've got big institutions who now have been penetrated, even if it's just one person writing a report, but that, you know, that's, it's out there to muddy the waters. And, and, and of course, you know, I, I uh, when it comes to amnesty, and you know, I've, like many others, have had positive overall views of that organization. And until now, you know, one <laughs> single report has done a vast amount of, uh, let's say, um, you know, institutional credibility. Well, yes. And at this moment in time, and these things are done purposefully, right? Mm -hmm. um, the timing is so important for some of these. I think, let's say they had written their report. I don't know. Uh, they they waited. <laughs> you know, they waited. So like, if that report had come out right after Butch, I know one would have believed it, you yes. know, but now it's come out during the summer when we're all on vacation and nobody's paying attention. All right. Except for uh, some of, you know, you and I and other experts who are constantly looking at the news and making sure that we're we're keeping up to date. Uh, you know, normal people on vacation, they're not thinking about, you know, Amnesty's report, but it has. And I know that in Canada, for example, they've stopped. Um, a lot of people have stopped giving donations. The Finns, for example, uh, the head of Amnesty in Finland um, has broken away. There were also here in Italy, there was a lot of criticism. Uh, and I do direct people towards a fantastic tweet that was written by Cristiano Tinazzi, and he was part of Amnesty, and he was actual in shock. And he wrote about his experiences in Ukraine in order to give, um, let's say, what what really was going on, you know, uh, to counter this uh, this narrative that had, that that Rovera right had created at the time. And to continue that thought, there, I mean, Russia weaponizes everything doesn't it we've got food energy everything refugees minerals, everything everything history education death birth um anything that you can think of sport anything that you can think of about this because it's something that no i'm extremely interested in i think i've heard you say that the weakness of the western strategy and the media is that we tend to compartmentalize these different threats. You know, we treat each crisis and put it in a separate box that doesn't in interconnect yeah. with each other. Does that really put us at a disadvantage when we're fighting a vertical power structure like Russia, you know, with their hybrid perpetual war philosophy? Yes, it certainly does. It certainly does. Um, we, as, as you were saying, and, you know, we've talked about this before, even off camera, um, <clears throat> Russia looks at everything from a point of view that whatever they need to do, and when I say this, it means the leadership needs to do whatever it needs to do to keep its power. So the non-kinetic world and the kinetic world, there's no difference for them. For us, Yes. I mean, we don't wake up in the morning and think, uh, oh, dear, you know, I shouldn't be doing this because it's a security threat. OK, I'll give you a really banal okay, example. Uh, TikTok, as we know, uh, the Chinese authorities and I uh, think they actually take information on people using TikTok. You know, there's been an article written about this. OK, when I said to my daughter, look, take it off your phone, she started laughing and I said, that's a security risk. See, they don't, they, there's no concept that these things can be weaponized and used against you in some way. And the Russians, this is what they do. But in our Western world, we've maybe, Jonathan, not been at war 
for a very long time. I mean, our generation, I've never seen more except for what happened in Yugoslavia, for example. And then afterwards, of course, there's you know, Georgia and Chechnya and Syria, but these are all very separate from us. So yes, um, it's, it's one of our weaknesses. We don't understand security. We don't understand how Russia has taken each area of life and kinetic or non-kinetic and they've weaponized it all. Okay, so that's, you know, it's, it's very difficult to explain this as mm. well to people who are listening in, you know. And unlike the Second World War, which I think was the last instance where we had total war, you know, in the West, and certainly Britain yep. uh, mobilized every aspect mm-hmm. of life. Yep. Um, and right, there's no one really <laughs> alive who, who remembers that or experienced it. Um but, well, except for our parents, right? I mean, my dad still remembers the bombs dropping. Mm-hmm. He still remembers the sound. But that's about it, you know? We don't even understand that information itself, the weaponization of information, is targeted towards us, and it's there to cause harm. Yeah. It's not there to make us feel better. <laughs> so this is... And they didn't announce know? it, did they? I mean, unlike the second no. war, there wasn't some big announcement over the radio, right, we're at war, everyone changed their mindset. They they kicked it off and they've been conducting it really um, to a greater or lesser extent over the last uh, 10 to 15 years, depending on who you speak to. Yeah, yeah. For most of that time, we haven't even realised we're at war or or mobilised to counter it, except Ukraine, of course. Ukraine has been since Well, I mean, people don't understand. For example, associations where, where we live. Okay, the UK, I'm here. Uh, how many of these associations are funded by Russia in order to gain, okay, um, in order to gain favors, in order to gain influence, all right? And then public policy, either domestic or foreign, is based on their needs, not what Italians need. This is the whole point. That's the non-kinetic, right, aspect of all of this. So it's um, it's something that people, and when I say to people, yeah, but who's funding them? You know, is it is it the Russians? Oh, here we go with the Russians again. You yeah. know, and everybody starts rolling their eyes. It's like, well, they want us to do their bidding. This is why, okay, Salvini stands up. And I'm sure that there are other politicians around. Even in the United States, you take a Ron Johnson, for example, right? Let's lift those sanctions. Let's lift those sanctions. That's what they want, Okay. Uh, or no visas, we have to give the Russians visas. You know, we need their money. So this is uh, this is this is these are all aspects. And you're absolutely right, Jonathan. Now the absolutely. visa aspect is a really interesting one, isn't it? Because mm-hmm. there are many issues on which you know Russian opposition or Russians generally either don't have an opinion or you know those who are uh, against the regime generally will will say things that we can we can agree with. But it seems that this visa issue has just pressed a button, not just with the regime, which you'd mm-hmm. expect, but with Russians in general. Sure. So yeah, that's... well, they don't want to live there. Yeah. Okay, all of the, the let's say, the, the elite, okay, let's call them the elite, all right? All of the, the cronies, the Russian cronies, okay, that are, are you know, around Putin, all of the oligarchs, their families all live in the West, right? They're still there and they're hoping to get over, okay? How many times has Lavrov said, okay, I'm leaving? I think four or five times he's tried to to resign from his position so he can go and live in the States, okay? So this is something that is dear to them. Otherwise they would, that reaction that we saw, right? Would not have been so virulent. I mean, I'm, I'm on Telegram all day long and it's like, wow, okay. You just got I mean, this is the rocker. one that sort of set everyone off, isn't yeah. it? And I, oh, I yeah. Sus- I suspect sure. there's something even deeper here, which is that not only is the elites are freaking out about that one, because as we all know, I mean, from the 19th century onwards, um, you know, Russian elites have been living and traveling to Europe uh, and, and trying to get away from their homeland, no matter mm-hmm. what they say about it. Um, <laughs> but this goes deeper because ordinary Russians who just want to live, earn money, be apolitical, take no responsibility for that side of life and just be, you know, anonymous, normal people, as it were. Uh, mm-hmm. This move to ban the visas forces them, doesn't it, into a decision to either become refugees 
or to mm-hmm. take a political stance. Mm-hmm. Um, they can no longer be neutral and just carry on existing. Yeah. And I think that's what's really triggered a lot of people here. It's yeah. like you've got to yeah. make a decision about which side you're on, not just, you know, pretend none of this is happening. Yeah, no, fully agree. Fully agree. It's a great observation, actually, because I hadn't thought of, no, that that aspect of it. Mm. Um, sure, because at that point, you know, you know you're going to have to ask for refugees status if you want to get in and and you're right they would have to actually decide at that point yeah uh, and not just sort of say okay well yeah and then i'll go just go back home you know no yes. <laughs> it's, it's a war you guys are doing lots of you know there, there are war crimes we're talking about genocide we're talking about an economy in ukraine that they'll probably lose a whole year of their gdp right we're not giving enough and we're not doing enough to help them out in that. But that's what mm. we're talking about, the destruction of a state. And they're doing it on purpose, trying to destroy the economy, trying to destroy the social fiber. Okay. Those, when we think of war crimes and the indiscriminate bombing of Ukrainian cities, that is done purposefully. That's terror, but it's also to break up the social fabric, to, to mm. grind them down. So that they're at one point they're just going to get so tired and they'll say, okay, just give him Crimea. Okay, give him something. All right, we can't take this anymore. Now, I know a lot of Ukrainians, that's not in their playbook. Uh, but this is what he's hoping for. He's also hoping that in your in Europe, in the West, in the free world, we'll, we're all going to get tired. The whole Ukraine fatigue thing, okay, will set in. People will lose, you know. Jonathan, I don't know about you, and I'm sure that you're, you're looking at things. People have the attention span of a, of a squirrel, all right? Uh, one day it's, oh, my God, all right? Oh, look at this, and, you know, for about 12 hours. Yeah. And then there's the next. And Russia plays on that, right? They keep bombing us with all different you know, stories. But, uh, yeah, yep, yeah, yep. Yeah. Now I kind of got lost. In we saw of- that with Trump <laughs> as well. It's like, oh, um, yeah. Every day it was an addiction yeah. watching him erode, you know, American institutions. But many people don't pay close attention either to the news stories or, as you said at the head of our conversation, to the nuances of language. You know, they, they, they tap into the emotions, the broad attraction or revulsion they feel with someone. They don't look at the actual nuance of the language, which often will tell you, what this person is intending to do or planning to do. And yeah. like a classic Bond villain, you know, Putin's been telling us before the war what he planned to do and what he thought of Ukraine. And he still is, you know, mm-hmm. and, and those statements, if you do a close reading of his statements, mm-hmm. his ludicrous historical essay, oh, if God. pure genocidal, hate-filled uh autocratic aggression I and mean, there's not nothing else there that's from- right that's right i'm glad you brought that one up because um there are two actual uh pieces that really uh now the one that jonathan is talking about for everybody who's listening in that was in july okay 2021 during the summer that was putin's i think it was something like 10 page essay or yeah. something absolutely ludicrous uh ludicrous for us but not so much okay for the actual culture itself steeped in imperialism and uh let's say expansionism there's a mm. lot of different you know things that he talks about in there um one thing that and there was another article that had come out this was, I think, in January, if I'm not mistaken, 20, uh, 2022. And again, it was a very trusted, and I can't remember, Timofev, if I'm not mistaken, who wrote um, uh, another article just, you know, laying out of Ukraine, uh, de-Ukrainization, actually just getting rid of the whole, right, the whole uh, state itself. And that was, those are the two pieces that I always look to and I say, okay, he, as you said, John, they're telling us what they're going to do. Yeah. This is it. Believe them, right? Believe them. And if you talk to other Russians, uh, I was in a great conversation with Dina Kapaeva. I wanted to mention this. Uh, she's written a fantastic article in The Atlantic. Please go on and read up on it um, because the blueprint for what we are seeing today was written a long time ago. 
Uh, there's lots and lots that come out uh, at the end of the 1990s, early 2000s. A lot of people put the spotlight on Dugan, but there were a lot of other writers who had forwarded and who had written about and mm. published in utopian novels or dysutopian novels, whatever you want to talk about, you know, whatever descriptor you want to give it. But they were telling us, you know, what they wanted to do. This is it. Okay. And Zhirinovsky spouted this stuff in Parliament there you are. year yeah. after year after year. Incredible. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, you know, uh, and people were not paying attention or you just think, oh, because we have a lot of our politicians that say things, but they never actually do them. Mm. <laughs> Instead, we're seeing, right? This yeah, is they'd it. actually do it. I mean, that was yeah. Uh, yeah. the supposed appeal for Trump. You know, he mm. he does stuff that no one else consider. I yeah. mean, he, he didn't do most of the stuff he promised, but... No. Yeah. Well, if you think of January the 6th, okay, they called, right? They, I mean, they put out, okay, I want you, he put out in December that tweet calling his troops to Washington. And, you know, I was monitoring all of these different chats and I was looking at what was being published at the time. And they're talking about bringing arms. They're talking, it's it's violent, aggressive language. And I said, they're going to do something. This is real, okay? And it was incredible to see how, you know, nobody was really talking about it. And then when, it, when the, you know, violence exploded uh, on January the 6th, of course, you know, I mean, when he called his troops, he was calling his troops. That's mm. what he was doing, you know? And the, the only whole... reason it didn't come off is because he's both cowardly and incompetent. In that sense, I mean, he's a lot like Putin, right? In the sense that he, he'll do whatever it takes to keep himself in office and it doesn't matter, you know, throw anybody yeah. under the bus uh it doesn't matter right so this is i mean there are no more there's no morality in no. any of these men no morality whatsoever no, it's simply no. whatever no whatever it takes to to uh to keep them in and they play off you know all of them trump did the same all on our weaknesses and vulnerabilities you know there, i mean there's two sides to this right there's what they do, and then there's also their, how they penetrate our weaknesses, our vulnerabilities, uh, to keep us sort of feeling on edge and, um, you know, uh, off, off uh, how can I put it, off balance, okay, at all times. So this is, uh, this is something else that they do. Now, some countries and media establishments do seem to be a little more receptive don't they to the propagandist mm. narratives and i know you've talked a lot about italy um which which you know there's still considerable risk within the political system there from russia's disinformation but we also have issues don't we in bulgaria mm. uh, and and especially the balkans uh moldova yeah. Uh, but the Balkans is probably one of the most worrying areas at the moment, isn't it? Yeah, it is. It is. Uh, because they've been there for a very long time. Let's remember that the economic and political capture that Russia um, went full force with, and this is probably after um, Andropov. Okay, that's when it really started, where... Um, they began to recruit people and all institutional levels uh, before they would only, uh, let's say, help a lot of people who were either in the Communist Party or, or, you know, that kind of thing. Instead, they changed that strategy. And Andropov said, we've got to start recruiting agents or people of influence who can be very, you know, pro-Russian or at that time pro-Soviet. Uh, and that never changed. Okay, that was a fundamental change in the approach towards the West and how to bring in, okay, uh, people towards the Kremlins um, into an alliance or aligned with the, the Kremlin, or at least to be friendly, okay, with them. Uh, and in the Balkans, this was also done. And it was also done through the church as well, through the Orthodox Church that has a very, very large um, let's say there's a lot of influence there uh, with them. So yes, and it's disturbing because we don't pay a lot of attention to it. 
Uh, there are a lot of divides, religious, political, the West for years and years and years, and I'm talking about the United States and Great Britain, but also the European Union did not pay a lot of attention uh, to what was happening uh, in that area, especially in the 90s and into the 2000s. And now we're seeing, you know, how they have captured. And we're also talking business as well, Jonathan, because what they try to go after, uh, obviously through energy contracts, right, through oil and gas contracts, that is how they, uh, that's the first approach. Um, and then all sorts of other resources. So that's how they try to get in. And, uh, but yes, that area is volatile. And, you know, it's considered another hotspot in Europe uh, for that. And I always read Ivana Stradner because she knows what she's talking about, okay, when it comes to that kind of thing. Um, and all of the different divides that the Russian, let's say, influences uh, is trying to break, you know, open. And uh, because let's remember, their whole game plan is to keep the West divided, right? Unity is the worst thing for the you know, for the Russian, uh, let's say, the, the Russian leadership. They need us divided. So you need all the little citizens divided because they're looking at their little, um, they're looking online and their FB feeds, uh, all arguing with each other. Then they need the political parties, okay, to be arguing with each other. So let's give a little bit of money to the right. Let's give a little money to the left and let's see how they do. Um, you know, uh, the information as you were talking about before, same thing. Okay, let's put some fuel on the fire here and there and uh, and just keep everyone talking about uh, fuff, as I call it, mm -hmm. things that are not important. Uh, I'm a security buff. So for me, that's the number one concern. Uh, but um, just keep everyone divided. And that's that they're very good at doing that, you know. Very, very good at doing that, and also buying up <laughs> politicians and uh, heads of newspapers, and uh, you know, and favors, and all sorts of things. I was going to say, doesn't it? Because information warfare is one thing, um, but that doesn't work alone, does it? You know, you also need no. so-called assets on the ground. Um, you need to bribe politicians, you need to yep. pay influencers, yep. you need you to... need the think tanks, you need the yes. universities, you need people who can be your mouthpiece. Okay. Then then you also need to because the one thing that they that uh let's say they did invest a lot in is leadership. Okay. So you soften up the territory, as you were saying now, Jonathan, with information, then you throw in the universities, you throw in the think tanks, um, making their narratives um, acceptable and legitimate, because that's the whole thing. They have to legitimize what they're saying. The leadership at the top, okay, is extremely important. So getting to those top leaders who can work for you Okay, that's the political capture and bringing them on board with all sorts of things. I've often asked myself, what kind of compromise do they have on these people? How much are they paying them? And these are all things, Jonathan, one thing that a lot of people don't realize is that in the United States, there's a lot of public, um, let's say public documents that are available. All right. Um, in the UK, I don't know exactly the situation of you know, what is available to the public to be able to to uh, to read and you know and study. I can tell you, Italy, and there are other countries I'd have to check to see. Um, politicians, anyone, can open up a, a private foundation and receive funds, and nobody knows anything. And there's there's no legislation in place to act as a watchdog to this kind of activity. So this is, you know, this is how they operate, but the leader at the top is extremely important. I've heard a great one as well uh, in that vein, which is very soft power, which is creating awards. Um, yes. You know, grants and awards. Grants or, or investing in the restoration of a building, which is yes. what, okay, Ushinov did in Rome. All right, he gave, I think it was something like 2 million euro in order to refer to, uh, renovate uh, the actual city hall. Okay, like we're talking 
getting right in there or buying property in Sardinia, mm. all right, where, you know, they, uh, uh, and, and having parties, lavish parties. I mean, let's, let's face it, you know, um, when they lavish all of this money, okay, all over the place, uh, it's, you know, who's not going to take it, right? Uh, I mean, before, up until 2014, they weren't thinking, they were saying, oh, wow, these people are coming here to spend. Great, fantastic. Okay, great. Lots of parties on the yachts. <laughs> until there's some political price to pay, which yeah. would force people to turn that down. And I think, you know, again, without saying something that's going to get me sued, there are... <laughs> <laughs> I think we said a lot here. <laughs> yes. I have to edit quite a lot out of here. Um, but there are consistent just... rumours that the Tory party in the UK has been awash with uh, donations. Of course. Yeah. Um, and there was no real political risk potentially of doing that until recently. Now, however, I think that almost certainly will have stopped um, simply because, you know, if you're accused of doing that, that's going to be career ending. But that's yeah. a very recent change, isn't it? It is. It is. Well, I mean, even with the sanctions up 2014, you know, Abramovich was not sanctioned, right? Uh, only recently. Uh, that was a very, it was a signal that the that the government sent. Um, even here in Italy, we, it was the first time that honours were taken away. We were giving out medals, like, you know, little chocolates uh, to Russians. And, um, you know, they're, they were also, you know, welcomed and that kind of thing. But now there are sanction lists. And this is something that is very new. And this is due, I think, um, the turning point was Bucha in Irpin and seeing the mass graves. And this was something that completely changed uh, what was happening. If you look at the dates, it's pretty much... No, the um, the the game changer. Although I think the UK was doing a lot better than most of us, <laughs> so they really, really backed uh, Ukraine when it was necessary and needed. They were there. Yes, yes, and you know, you could say perhaps cynically that uh, Johnson might have thought that would be a career-saving move. So I'm sure there's some uh, self-interest calculated there. But at the same time, I think. Uh, also, there was a degree of sort of genuine... Um, yes, I do too. Uh, I call it passion behind that. I think that, that decision yeah. was fairly genuine. Yeah, yeah. Well, we also have Ben Wallace and all of the staff. You've got, mm. right, uh, the foreign ministry. I mean, these are all... There are, uh, there are administrative staff and people who have worked, you know, in, uh, uh, in parliament and in the different ministries mm. for a very, very long time. I mean, we look at the politicians, they come and go, but there's a lot of staff that's there that have been there for years and years and years and years that may influence you know, certain decisions. Mm. So this is important to keep in mind. Um, it's the only thing that keeps Italy afloat, by the way, because of the sweeping. We'd be really lost uh, if it weren't for those career uh, people in ministries keeping things going. But yes, yes. And I mean, the UK has stepped up before. So it's not something you know, that is alien to you know, the way that the UK operates. You know? and uh, That's true. I mean, and of course, we were uh, far faster with the military support. And for a while, yeah. you know, I was saying some fairly negative things about the humanitarian support. But if you look at the numbers now, maybe that was slower to get off the ground. Mm -hmm. But still, the numbers of refugees coming to the UK has really spiked up. Yeah. Um, the numbers who are actually staying in the UK rather than deciding to move on to other countries, it seems to be fairly stable, which is great. Mm -hmm. And the, the quantity of humanitarian assistance has gone up as well. So... Mm -hmm. You know, I can no yeah. longer really fault, fault that now. It's going no, around. no, no. Well, let's also think. I mean, when was the last war that was fought in Europe? Yugoslavia, mm. right? That was the last time. Um, it, it, we sort of thought as a society that war would never touch us again. And, you know, taking decisions like that on, on helping other countries, arming other countries... Oh, uh, you know, this these are decisions that sort of I think caught off caught a lot of governments and a lot of countries off guard. Uh, they didn't know know what to do, how to react. 
I could be wrong. Mm -hmm. uh, I know that the UK had the intelligence. They understood. They knew what was going on. Uh, but it's one thing, I think, before and saying, okay, no, they're going to attack. Then when February the 24th came along, or let's say February, I put it at February the 21st when Putin was talking to his security council. And that's when, okay, it became public that mm. this was what he was going to be doing. Uh, this infamous video and, um, you know, a circus show that he put on there. Um, you know, but it's one thing. And then when the bombs start dropping, that's when it becomes real, mm. right? I know people who have worked, uh, that work in certain security positions, so on and so forth. I mean, they were already mobilized. But it's one thing really just before the drum, the, the, you know, the bombs drop, you know, it's going to happen. And when it does, it's still shocking. I think that's one instance which I found terrible, but fascinating. And that is that the UK and the US were convinced based on the evidence this yeah. was going to happen. Yeah. And yet, uh, you know, commentators on the left, the right were saying it wouldn't, but that also mm. extends to Russia's opposition. So, you know, I listen to a lot of bloggers, I listen to a lot of mm -hmm. commentators mm -hmm. who are usually very, very insightful, you know, and they'll tell mm. us what's going to happen before it does in Belarus and the tightening of tyranny yeah. and so on. Um, and uh, uh, all of them got this wrong. Pretty much mm -hmm. all of them said... I know some people that didn't. <laughs> there are a few. And, and we were trying to scream it out also yeah. from, let's say, April. I remember uh, speaking with Olga back in April 2021, mm. and she was already on pins and needles. Uh, and mm. she wanted to get the podcast out very quickly because she thought, okay, this is it. They're going to go to war. We've got, we've got to, you know, we've got to help. And then they didn't. Mm. Uh, but uh, let's say certain people had understood this is it. You know, don't take this seriously. Take this seriously. I think, Jonathan, it speaks more to our bias and what we are ready to accept. At least that's the way I see it. Well, um, there's some interesting ones. And, and, mm -hmm. and maybe there was some internal information, but someone like Viktor Shenderovich, who was forced out of the country... Um, I think it was back in around November. I may uh -huh. be wrong, but he was forced out of the country in autumn last year, mm -hmm. uh, right up until the invasion. And he's got almost everything right over mm -hmm. two decades. Mm -hmm. um, but he was saying, no, it's not going to be war. It makes no sense. It's, it's, it's a, you know, it's extreme bluff, but it's a bluff nonetheless. I wonder how many people in Russia's um, establishment believe that as well. And maybe many people in the military thought it Could was a bluff. Well, they didn't know what was going on, right? I mean, we know that the FSB, the the investigation that now, you know, uh, all the information that's coming out in the Washington Post articles, uh, we know that the FSB two years ago was sent into Ukraine. I mean, they've always been there, mm. okay, trying, right, to buy off politicians. We know the long history in Ukraine. Uh, this was, no, this is normal fare. But it was really two years ago when they started in earnest, mm. okay, putting down that plan and going in and buying off, okay, the little mayors and uh, having their people in the services in the SBU, okay, in um, uh, in Ukraine. So this was, um, you know, this was ongoing, right? The, the whole thing. Um, so <laughs> I think I, we're... We're getting towards the end here. And um, I mean, one question I wanted to ask. So Russia is a master of economic warfare. Um, mm. They're also a master of probing continuously. Testing, 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 testing. testing. So the yes. obvious question is, what next? What do we have to be prepared for? Especially if it looks likely they're going to lose the war. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, there may be some sort of nuclear accident. Can I say this? <laughs> I guess I can. Um, all the indicators are there, or at least the threat. The threat is there. It's constant. This could be the actual, you know, keep pressing on it. There, I know a lot of people say that, no, that is not possible. Uh, biological warfare that a lot of people are not talking about, but I do know some people that are keeping an eye, okay, on that. Uh, this is this is something. 
Um, those are the two that I can think of, let's say right off the top of my head, um, more as the areas are, are liberated, uh, more mass graves, unfortunately, this will be the horror story that we will have to live with in our consciousness in, in the West, that we have not stopped this. You know what, Jonathan, I almost get an idea. I I'm, I studied the world, the Second World War, okay, in depth. It's something that I do a lot of research on. I still do. And I'm sort of, I sort of think, my God, we are living through people in concentration camps in territory that has, you know, that is occupied. And we're not doing enough. And we're not acting uh, to liberate, okay, truly liberate um, and help Ukraine. But getting back to your, you know, it's sort of like watching, oh, geez, we know these people are in concentration camps and we're not doing anything. A bit of, you know, China as well, right? Uh, this is the whole thing. But I think that's, and also, also he will try to, um, he will try in the occupied territories, uh, the whole referendum thing, which I find fascinating, by the way, because you think, okay, well, well we've conquered it, just take it. But he sort of has to do this sham I don't know whether it's just trolling the West or not, but a sham referendum, and I don't understand, you know, it's one of the questions that I'd love to ask somebody, uh, or maybe you have an idea about that. But he sort of has to have sham elections, uh, sham referendums, even at home, you know, in order to justify, right, his power. I think what we're going to be seeing is also the mass, mass exodus uh, artifacts, for example, that nobody's paying attention to, but they are, I think the Russian forces and the leadership, Putin, everyone is concentrated on getting the Southeast, uh, let's say access, right? They need access to the sea. Uh, there's one thing that a lot of people are not talking about is that they need those port cities because it's the, it's where you, I mean, port cities are infamous, like Odessa and other areas for smuggling of arms, drugs, uh, anything, all right? Let's remember that Putin was in a port city uh, in St. Petersburg, where the Tambov family was there, and he had to come to terms. He, he you know, they had uh, an alliance. Um, these are very, very important. Any... Anything where he can have free access to be able to get you no know, materials in and out, you no know, under the radar, it's extremely important. So those areas, like losing Crimea, is a big deal. <laughs> it's not so much the political big deal. We're talking about how much stuff came through Crimea, right? In terms of Absolutely. drugs, gold. I mean, they use their yachts for this kind of thing. Right, they need free access where nobody's going to be asking any questions. This happened in St. Petersburg for years and years and years and mm. years. It still probably does. So this is, you know, uh, we can see. I, I think that there will be a push. Uh, I mean, he'll try. Let's just put it that way. He's not going to give up. He won't give and this up. This is this is something I read uh, that Mark Galliotti has written, mm. which is, and this is really ignored as part of the hybrid warfare. And that is that it's not about information only. It's not about the army only. What also is part of Putin's armory is not just corruption too, but the mafia. You know, oh, almost in the yeah. first wave oh, uh, of any kind of domination sure. territory, they'll sure. send in you know, yeah. the crooks. There's a little, of course, there's a little, um, the story that fell under the radar, nobody actually picked it up. I'd, I'd read about it in the Italian newspaper, where there were arms that were being sent from Canada. They ended up in Italy, okay, and they knew that these were arms that were going to end up in Russia. They got, they were tipped off. The, the American, the Italian authorities sent, right? They called up the American authorities and said, get your ass over here because this is what's happening. And they flew over, okay, to stop the shipment. But sure, of course. And all of the crime families. The problem with that is that how do you do any research or an investigation unless you go undercover, right? I mean, there's nothing written down. 
uh, Putin is a mafia boss. Mm. And this is essentially everything is there's no, there are no documents. You know, everybody I keep seeing on, on Twitter. Yeah. But, you know, where's the link? And it's like, where's the evidence? Yeah. <laughs> where, it's not like mafia dons are going to leave evidence behind. You know, I mean, look at the system that they've set up for money laundering. Uh, all of the companies, I mean, there are thousands of companies to move money. It's an extremely complicated system. Bill Browder, right, had to get, had to use a whole army of, of accountants to look into this stuff. You know, governments don't have this kind of thing. So, of course, right? And, and let's remember, too, mafia, they start off in a certain way, but they try to get legalized and they use this system of all the little, let's say, you know, the Russian dolls, one one company and another, and it takes you forever to find, okay, information. Mm-hmm. Uh, so certainly, certainly. And they're moving also human trafficking. I mean, there's a lot of things, anything that, that you know, uh, where there's a lot of money to be made, of course, mm. of course. And of course, where there's refugees, where there's chaos, where there's Everything. need, there's a huge fortunes to be made. Yeah. Um, yeah. We could probably carry on, I think, for <laughs> hours and hours. And in fact, uh, we should definitely have another session at some point. Oh, but... definitely, definitely, <laughs> definitely. I, I'd love to come back, Jonathan, because, you know, it's like a conversation, which is what I really like to do, Right. Uh, instead of just the question, but also learning from you as well, uh, which I really appreciate. And I want to thank you okay, for inviting me, and I'd love to come back. Thank you so much for speaking to me, and good luck with all your podcast work. I'm really <laughs> interested to see what guests you've yeah. got lined up for the next Yeah, conference. Yeah, and also some investigations that I'm looking into. So it's uh, it's a bit, you know, we're always working. We're always working, always. <laughs>